Welcome to Failure to Launch, a podcast for brand managers, entrepreneurs, and innovators about how some of the biggest brand flops and failures and fuck-ups have shaped our lives. My name is Sam, and I'm a brand strategist, consultant, and designer. And if you're in a business like mine, you'll often find yourself bombarded of stories of amazing brands and innovations that explode in growth. My question is, what happens when all that hype turns to disaster? What happens when some brands take flight and others completely fail at launch? Today, I'm joined by Luke Bredmore and Alan Morrison, two immensely talented individuals. Luke, uh, because I'm super lazy, can you introduce yourself to the audience for me? Of course. Hi, I'm Luke. Uh, I am the design director at Fluid, and I oversee a lot of the branding projects that we work on. Excellent. And Alan? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm the creative director at Fluid, and I work across a whole range of different um, design disciplines and sectors. Uh, Both being very modest to extremely experienced designers in my experience fellas i just wanted to ask straight away you know what do you know about bunnings well bunnings uh well it's somewhere that i really love to shop it's always good fun going there uh i mean i have been there i've frequented bunnings uh since i came to australia four years ago um bought lots of pots and heard all about the sausages (laughs) That's about all the experience you need to talk about this uh, brand today. So um, Bunnings Warehouse, for those who don't know, is the beloved hardware and home improvement retail in Australia. It was founded back in 1887 and it's known for its really large warehouse style stores and of course the soggy car park snag sizzle. How could Bunnings, the friendly green giant of Australian retail, a universally beloved cultural reference point for most Australians, ever be featured on our show? Well, have either of you ever heard much about Bunnings' push into the UK? I sure have, Sam. It was uh, something that I've heard about probably, well, I mean, a few years ago now. But, yeah, they obviously tried to um, start up in the UK and it was uh, an epic fail. I don't know a great deal about the, I'll confess, about the um, about the launch of the brand in the UK, but I... But I remember hearing and seeing a lot about the uh, launch of the mm. Masters brand in Australia. Um, well, this story really starts a few years earlier, back in 2011. Masters, a new home improvement and hardware retailer brand, was being launched in Australia. It was a co-venture between American giant Lowe's and the Australian supermarket giant Woolworths. And its goal was really clear, challenge West Farmers, Bunnings, uh, total domination of a $42 million hardware retail market. However, Masters struggles to gain a foothold in the market and from an ABC News article at the time, which uh, the source of which you can find in the show notes, quote, accounts lodged showed Masters has lost $227.4 million so far in 2015. Woolworths and Lowe's have pumped $3.2 billion into the struggling hardware arm. So some big numbers there. Something to uh, think about. It, it probably deserves an entire episode of its own at some point, but for our purposes today, one of the big bets their team had made was on building greenfield sites, that is to build new, brand new outlets on undeveloped land. And one of the fallout uh, of some of the fallout of that was uh, some really less than perfect locations. I remember, um, I remember seeing a couple pop up and being absolutely gobsmacked um how what the level of investment was at the time you know they were huge sites very much like bunnings um and i think i went there once just to sort of uh, out of curiosity to see how it might be different to bunnings 
I have never heard of Masters before. Um, I'm a virgin to uh, mag- Masters, so I-, I reckon Al has a bit more knowledge than I do. A master virgin. <laughs> <laughs> well, those less than perfect locations and, and, and not quite perfect positioning meant that in um, January 2016, Masters was in col- complete collapse. The whole venture collapsed in on itself like a neutron star, and West Farmers is becomes ascendant as if to sort of dance on Woolworth's grave, Bunnings' team then begin acting on a really ambitious plan to expand internationally. So in 2016, full of piss and vinegar, West Farmers' team believes Bunnings' format is invincible, they smash masters without having to lift a finger, and with a large pot of cash to spend, they decide they're going to take some lessons from masters' failure and expand over into the UK. Their very first problem was that they decided we're going to dodge the greenfield sites issue that masters faced by acquiring an existing hardware chain uh, called Homebase in uh, the UK for about 340 million pounds. Luke, you're from that uh, end of the world. Can you um, tell us much about Homebase? Homebase, from what I remember, um, I mean, we had, its main competitor was called B&Q and I, I mean, I religiously went to B&Q, but I think Homebase was renowned um, as being the cheaper alternative. I think in terms of quality, uh, we always, well, I would, I personally would associate B&Q as being probably higher quality product than Homebase. Well, interestingly, Homebase actually wasn't Bunnings' first target for the acquisition. According to the Sydney Morning Herald quote, the original target was the industry leader Kingfisher, which operates B&Q in the UK. With operations throughout Europe and Russia, however, West Farmers concluded it was too complicated and risky an acquisition and hence turned its sights on the number two player, Homebase. Homebase was actually founded back in 1979 as a joint venture between supermarket chain Sainsbury's and a Belgian retailer named GB InnoBM. In 2000, Homebase is acquired by the Home Retail Group, which also owns Argos, um, which, for those who don't know, is a very popular and I think slightly weird UK retailer. Um, how would how would you describe Argos? It's great. It does have a kind of unique um, approach to retailing. I've I've had very limited experiences with it, but I sort of thought about it. It's a bit like a JB Hi-Fi across with a post office. Um, you, you kind of you have the screens, you select the thing, and then someone disappears out the back, and your, your product arrives out the front. It's it's quite strange, but um, definitely you know it gets a lot of love over in the UK. Yeah, everyone loves it. So, are you saying that um, it wasn't so much a kind of self serve experience where they had a big like um, shop floor, um, and all of the product was on show? Are you saying that the product was somewhere else and customer service actually went and got it for you? So basically the way that they're laid out is you have a front of house, um, the retail component, which is like a room with um, you have the cashier's desk and then you have screens or catalogs back in the day. Um, Then all of the products were um, kept in a warehouse, which was probably about 95% of the size of the building. So they would, once you've made your selection and you've purchased a product, they then go and go into the warehouse, find the product for you, and then give it to you. Wow. That's interesting. There must have been a lot of, um, there must have been a lot of cost benefits in doing it that way. Yeah. And they do have some, it's not like they don't have any product on sale. Um, So predominantly you, 
they would have some toys they'd have tvs on display um and also like jewelry um because i guess with jewelry you want to check quality um so those sort of higher value goods they kind of put on show so that you can see the product for them for yourself but a lot of the cheaper goods um yeah are just kept in the warehouse and it's not like you can also change your mind so if you're like oh i don't like the look of this product i want to change it to something else then you can anyway you know welcome to our fan podcast about argos um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we better we better move it along um it's 12 minutes talking about argos <laughs> uh, so under Home Retail Group's ownership, Homebase had expanded its product range and footprint and the company had opened more than 300 stores around the UK. However, their performance was starting to decline by 2016, so they were struggling to compete with some of the other home improvement retailers, like you said, Luke, B&Q, and also Wix. Um, and the company underwent a major restructure that involved uh, closing a bunch of the underperforming stores and reducing its product range. Uh, it's Performance prior to that 2016 acquisition was really mixed. So the company had been struggling for some time and there was a real lack of investment in its stores. Um, what I thought I could do is I thought I might show you uh, what the stores looked like at the time. So I'll just hit this button here. So that's uh, Homebase in 2015 and another Homebase in 2017. Um, so for the benefit of the uh, listeners, do you guys want to describe what you're seeing here? Well, the one on the the image on the um, on the left there, the two thousand and fifteen, um, it looks like the big kind of warehouse sort of um, proposition, um, and it looks like that decorating centre there looks reasonably well considered from a design perspective. The image on the right hand side looks like a complete shambles. Um, What's going on there? Yeah. It looks like an, like one of those abandoned warehouses that someone just acquired. It's probably about to be demolished and then they've just decided to stick a load of product in it. So they clearly haven't thought about the customer experience. <laughs> yeah. What happened there? Yeah, Homebase 2017. Things were, I think it's that general lack of uh, investment, which meant upkeep had fallen behind. They were really struggling with all those different stores and they were somewhat underperforming. Following the acquisition by Bunnings, Bunnings appointed a new leadership team from Australia to oversee the transition to the new Bunnings warehouse brands. Uh, they appointed former Bunnings exec PJ Davis, who was going to serve as CEO of the UK operation under its former owner, uh, Home Retail Group. The response to years of declining sales had been to fill the stores with concessions like Laura Ashley and brands that had controlled like Habitat and Argos. For those who don't know, in retail, concessions are where retailers allow a third-party brand or company to operate in a designated section or area within the store, and hence the end result was this odd combination of home improvement and homewares. It's not uncommon for retailers to partner with other brands or companies to offer their products in store. However, in this case, it seems that Homebase may have lost their focus on their core business in home improvement and gardening by filling their stores with these concessions. The Bunnings team may have felt that Homebase was really neglecting the core needs of the customers. So the original plan was actually to leave Homebase and the concessions alone and collect the modest profits the business was generating until the pilots of the new Bunnings warehouses had produced something that worked for UK customers. 
Uh, however, the Bunnings UK management team, who had all been seconded from Australia, couldn't help themselves once they'd seen Homebase's stores for themselves. What they saw was an underperforming business and a range of stores that were starved of investment. So PJ Davis, former Bunnings executive, described his reaction to walking into some of the stores. Quote, the next store we're doing had no lights. It was disgusting. So they began working on fixing it and they tore up the original script that we're just going to, you know, leave those stores as is and we're going to modify things along the way. They couldn't, they just couldn't help themselves and they began to work on fixing numerous stores all at once. Uh, Alan, you've got about as much experience in retail as anyone. Um, what do you sort of make of that strategy? <laughs> well, my mind um, immediately turns to um, such things as competitor audits. And, um, yeah, what was the strategy behind that? Uh, don't have too much insight on the exact strategy process other than um, there was a quick shift in the original plan to something totally different. Mm. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, a recipe for disaster. Um, so the first step was a wholesale clear out of local management and of the concessions. <laughs> they axed the entire home-based senior management team and about 160 middle managers as soon as they got the keys to the stores. That's the same. The, the very people who probably had the insights that they um, needed about the, the UK um, yeah, the, the sector were, were lost. So the people that have knowledge about the business and probably the best people that you could probably work with for finding improvements, you have you just get rid of them like straight away. That's just sounds ridiculous. Mm. It's just crazy. Yeah, PJ Davis explained the dismissals by saying, quote, you have to drive strong change management, and to do that, you need to change the senior team. No, I mean, I, it's, I just find it interesting. I mean, there's obviously they obviously felt that there was a desire and a need to drastically re reposition the sort of experience that their customers were having, um, and I mean, obviously that kind of goes to show that it didn't work out well for them. So that kind of just highlights the fact that it was a poor decision on their, their on their end. Um, the change that was coming may not have been one that the customers of Homebase could have predicted. Quote, we've made this decision to be in a home improvement and garden retailer, and we've got rid of the duvets, cushions, and coffee cups. We're going to go back to the core of home improvement and garden. We don't want to sell the soft side. There are plenty of other retailers like Dunelm, Ikea, and Next who are doing a good job of that. And I guess they just clearly didn't have a, a great understanding of their audience and what their audience really um, liked about the home base experience hmm. so all those concessions that we talked about the different brands that were in there they all had that more homemaker skew to them than what bunnings was used to shoppers were now instead of being greeted by you know cushions and coffee cups there was rows of serious looking toolboxes and display tables featuring the latest thinking in power tools there was floor-to-ceiling floor shelving akin to the warehouse areas uh, in the checkouts in Ikea. There's this real industrial chic look to Bunnings Warehouse um, and it's really clearly aimed at hardcore DIYers. But somewhat at odds with Homebase's established London flat and back garden aesthetic. In terms of uh, financial outcomes, any guesses what impact this decision to ditch homewares might have had? Well, if you... 
it would have been interesting to understand what percentage of their um, revenue came from that side of the business. Um, and based on the description that you've given us, it sounds like it might have been 50% of their revenue. So, you know, if you... If you're if you're kissing fifty percent of your revenue goodbye, you better have a pretty good plan to replace it. I mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. The decision to ditch homewares cost Homebase two hundred million dollars of sales that it had to win back from elsewhere. That's a staggering amount. So we mentioned before there was up to three hundred uh, Homebase stores around uh, the UK. The decision was made that there was over there was a 260 stores left that they were going to undergo the Bunnings treatment. Senior management moved really quickly to launch new stores with uh, a store in St Albans leading the charge and then 23 other stores being labelled as pilots so as to be revamped into the new Bunnings format. Uh, and that included large outdoor areas for gardening, tradesmen sections and really neatly stocked high-end power tools. There's a large section that was devoted to what looked like a breeding ground, breeding ground for power tools with 250-pound mitosaurs nestling among exhaustive selections of cordless drills, and there's a 700-pound four-burner gas barbecue with 130-pound log splitters, fittings that would look at home in the backyard of any Brisbane uh, suburban house. I mean, I just think about um, competitors and having a point of difference. They had a point of difference before through their offering, whereas you could, their main competitor in the UK would have been B&Q and Wix, who were already doing exactly the same, same thing and probably doing it better with a, a customer base, a loyal customer base. So, I mean, you're just kind of opening up a can of worms for yourself and by offering the same thing and you, you, you no longer have a point of difference. Oh, I was just going to say that, that Luke, um, that sounds pretty spot on and um, you can't also, um, it also kind of gets you thinking about the level of arrogance that the, the Bunnings senior management um, brought to the project in the UK. Harsh words. Um, so... The new St. Bunning, uh, new St. Albans Bunnings Warehouse opens on the February 2nd with a sausage sizzle that's led by Peter Davis, Managing Director of Bunnings. Uh, from The Guardian, quote, Drizzle may have replaced the Aussie sunshine at Bunnings' first UK outpost, but the waft of onions and sausages through the store will give British shoppers the first taste of how they do DIY down under. Quote, there's always a sausage sizzle, says PJ Davis. But it's in February, right? Uh, yes, February 2nd. So, so it's freezing cold because that's when you predominantly have snow in the UK. People associate sizzling sausages with summer, not standing outside queuing for a sausage in the winter. They're like, I want to get in that store really quickly. I want to get where it's warm. They, and nobody likes to stand in the rain, especially English people. I mean, the amount of rain that they have to kind of ensure <laughs> throughout their lives it's just like they would definitely try to avoid that at any point <laughs> and what any possibility yeah very well said i actually i read a few vitriolic articles about the sausage sizzle itself and the fact that there was no bacon sarnies the equivalent of uh yeah like a, a, a sausage sizzle over here would be in the uk would be a bacon sarnie like 
us Brits love a bacon sandwich. So if they had kind of changed it from maybe a sausage sizzle to a a bacon sarnie, then maybe that would have intrigued more of their customers to come. I mean, still, it's still winter. Like, you know, nobody wants to be in the cold. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that, that's a pretty fundamental problem is standing outside in the sleet and snow. Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter if you've got like a gazebo or a tent, still cold. Yeah. English people don't like being cold. So um, not content with introducing Brits to the guilty pleasures of the Aussie's snag sizzle, uh, Bunnings next decided to force its so cheery, it's cheesy advertising campaign on the Mopey Bombs. Any thoughts that Bunnings might have altered their format, even a touch for their multi-billion dollar push into the UK, is clearly not the case. If it works in Australia, it'll work in England, seems to be the mantra. So, and why not? You know, the Bunnings ads um, are headed by WPP's, the brand agency, and they're really simple, yet return such big bang for buck that it's really hard to imagine them changing the format for any reason at all. An article on spinoff.nz explained the thinking behind the ads. Uh, Bunnings used to have ads with simple line drawings on building paper, but in 2008, they decided to switch things up and make their ads more genuine and authentic. Um, how much do you guys know about how the Bunnings ads are made? I gather that they are actual employees of the company. Yeah, bang on. Um, so according to the marketing manager, Delina Shields, uh, the ads are not scripted at all. The team members simply answer questions like, uh, when you think about a wonderful living space, what does it mean to you? And the responses are what you see on TV. So when Bunnings is planning a new ad campaign, what they do is they send out internal communication to their staff about the theme of the ad, like plants, Easter, decorating. And then they invite themselves to put themselves forward if they're passionate or excited that, about that area. The team members who want to be on the ad will put their hand up and then Bunnings agency will meet them and then have a chat. Bunnings puts in an extra amount of effort to hiring um, ex-tradies or people who uh, have a background in um, construction or renovation. And so they really understand kind of, you know, that space. There's, there's more to that article, quote, where some ads feature real people in heavy quotations, they give the impression that the talent is eyeballing a loaded gun and cheery sound bites from Bunning staffers are such a TV mainstay. They're 100% real, laughs Delina Shields, head of marketing. I don't think they could be any more real. So shoots happen on location and they can often go from the time the store opens to the time it closes. And staff actually don't get any sort of monetary bonus for appearing in the ad. What they do get is they get a commemorative badge that they get to stick on their apron. Uh, so I'll see that up here. It says, uh, quote, as seen on TV. And that's enough to, to get people excited about being on the ads. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> It says quite a lot about their culture, actually. People <laughs> put their hand up to do that. It seems like it's quite a, a short. I mean, you guys put your hand up to be on this podcast, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, it says a lot about our culture. <laughs> <laughs> because do JB Hi-Fi do a similar thing? Yeah, they have the um, all the handwritten specials. So JB Hi-Fi, for the, any of the listeners who don't know, um, JB Hi-Fi has a range of specials and signs that have always been handwritten by the staff in the store, which means they can put little jokes on it, they can be fun, they can express themselves in any way that they see fit, um, so long as, you know, 
uh, they don't get in trouble on the internet. But a lot of those signs go viral and end up being, you know, even bigger drivers of um, PR and marketing for that brand. Right. So we're going to talk about this a bit more when we come back next week. Uh, but for now, we're going to finish off here and uh, we'll, we'll call that the end of part one. So uh, thanks for joining in today, guys. I hope you learned something new along the way. Um, tell your audience at home what you've been working on, where they can find out more about that work. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sam. Um, so some recent um, case studies that we've, or projects that we've been working on. Um, so we've recently launched um, a new uh, brand identity for a beef uh, manufacturer here in Australia called Greenham. Um, check out the case study on our website. Well, if it's not there, then it will be relatively soon. Uh, if you want to know anything more about what we spoke about today, you can check out the show notes for sources or, as Luke said, visit fluid.au to find out more about what we've been working on. Uh, Join us next time on Failure to Launch, where we look at another spectacular launch that ended in one of the world's biggest flops, failures, and fuck-ups that shaped their lives. The opinions and views expressed on Failure to Launch belong to the individual speaking and do not represent the official views of Fluid Branding.